in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. And so our first point, our first point is baptism, or our, verse, our first view to baptism is baptism as costly commitment. Costly commitment. We are looking back. We see, we see Moses, excuse me, Paul makes no bones about it. Baptism serves as entrance into the covenant. Entrance into the covenant. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The cloud was the very presence of God by his spirit. In the old covenant, the people of Israel were not given the spirit within, but rather the spirit manifest, manifested outside of them, and it led them from without. In fact, Moses was the only one who had the spirit. At times, the spirit would come down and would fill people for particular tasks. We see this from the construction of the tabernacle, but primarily, Moses only was indwelt by the spirit of God. He even laments that he wished more had the Holy Spirit. And so we look at this as the Mosaic Covenant. That would be the covenant regarding the law of Moses. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So we know the cloud, that would be the, the presence of God in the day that led the people through the wilderness. And then when they stopped and would, uh, they would erect the tabernacle, the spirit would come down over the tabernacle that is a tent. And Moses would go and meet face to face with the Lord. But regarding water, regarding water, it was the passing through the Red Sea that served as Israel's entrance into the covenant of Moses. It was the passing through the Red Sea that served as Israel's entrance into the covenant of, of Moses. In fact, the way Paul writes he, he, is, he writes as if this should be known already, that this is fundamental knowledge. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers... And notice he's writing to the church at Corinth, so he's, he's not just saying the fathers, the, spirit, the fathers of the Jews, a, a genealogy of sorts. He's saying your spiritual fathers, your fathers in the faith, that is Israel as an example to us, even as those who are Gentiles, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And there's even a, a, a proto-communion going on here. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. There was a foreshadowing of the ordinances within Israel. So baptism is entrance into covenant. Throughout God's covenant, water has consistently identified and set apart the people that belong to God. Predating Moses, we see this with Noah. We'll talk more about Noah later. But in the flood, the people of God were saved from the floodwaters of judgment and wrath, and the righteous perished. The earth was cleansed in one act. Both the unrighteous were destroyed and the righteous were spared. 
And Noah, too, was given a covenant. Thus, water served as entrance into the covenant. It set apart the people of God. We see this with Moses, as I've stated. And, again, speaking about the warning he's giving, he says, look, in verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. There was a generation in the wilderness that did not see the promised land because they did not believe God could actually cause them to enter in and take dominion of the land of Canaan. The spies came back from spying on the land and lied regarding what they saw because they were fearful of the inhabitants. And they spurned Moses and, in, and they spurned the Lord. And so the Lord said, okay, you faithless generation, you will wander for 40 years until you die off. And your descendants I will take into the land. But who then is Moses' success successor in taking them into the land? It's Joshua. But before they go into the land, they pass through the Jordan River. And so water always signifies entrance into covenant. The generation that did not pass through the Red Sea did pass through the Jordan River. Water has always signified entrance into covenant. And we too see this with Jesus. Jesus submitted to or gave himself over to the baptism of John, but Jesus also institutes baptism. In Matthew 28, he charges the disciples in his leaving. He says, you will go into all the world and you will proclaim the gospel and you will baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I command you. In establishing the new covenant, Jesus charges his people to baptize. Baptism is costly commitment. So because of this, because of all this, dating back to, uh, from Noah all the way to the ministry of Jesus, the church, since the apostolic age, has always viewed and practiced baptism as entrance into covenant community. That covenant community being the church. This has been the norm since the apostolic age. In fact, in the church that became um, the, the patristics, you know, those early church fathers that we, that fought for orthodox belief and kept heresy at bay, many, throughout their time, this would be the first 300 years of Christianity, they would have a long period in which a baptismal candidate was um, observed, sometimes up to a year before they were admitted because the church wanted to verify that they had fruit in keeping with repentance and that they really were who they professed to be. And only after that period and only after their baptism was granted were they allowed to participate in the other ordinance of the church, that is the Lord's Supper. And so since the beginning of the church, baptism has always had in mind entrance into covenant community, entrance into the church. We also see as a costly commitment, baptism is a sign of repentance. Baptism actually predates Christianity. 
Jews were being baptized in Jesus' day prior to Jesus' death, resurrection, and his commission to baptize. Now, this seems obvious, but when many regard or think of baptism, they only assume what we'll look at in Romans 6, that it only signifies joining Jesus in his death and his resurrection. But if that's the case, why did Jews baptize before Jesus? Why? John, Jesus' cousin, we call him John the Baptist, he offered a baptism, but only on the condition of repentance. Only on the condition of repentance. And many Jews seeking to be faithful lined up for this baptism. So not only was it a sign of repentance, but it was expected of the one baptized to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It was a mark of true repentance, not just a verbal proclamation or a verbal confession, but John warned the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, that you must bear fruit in keeping with repentance because the kingdom of God is at hand. And so John in proclaiming a baptism of repentance, is actually warning the people, saying you're doing this to be marked by covenant, and your entrance is repentance and being washed by the waters. And it's that covenantal piece that is incredibly important, particularly when we consider Jesus. Because if it was just a baptism of repentance, why? Why did Jesus get baptized? What sin did he have need of repenting of. But Jesus was baptized by John in order to fulfill all righteousness. Those are his words. John didn't even want to baptize him, but Jesus demanded it and said, in order to fulfill all righteousness. Because it wasn't just a baptism of repentance, but it was entrance into covenant. And Jesus, in submitting himself to baptism, is declaring publicly that I belong to the community of faith, that I belong to the covenant that is Israel. And as such, he fulfilled all righteousness. And in joining Israel in covenant community, Jesus was then able to redeem Israel as a covenant member from within. This goes hand in hand with Jesus being the truer and better Israel. He submitted himself to the waters, not to be cleansed of his sin, he, for he had no sin, but to declare, I am a member of Israel. Furthermore, we see baptism as a costly commitment also with the church as holding the authority of baptism. In the same way that Israel was baptized into Moses, we are baptized into Christ. And Christ has entrusted his authority to the church. To the church. Moses served, as I mentioned earlier, as a representative of God to the community of God. Moses bore the reproach of the people to God he communicated to the Lord on their behalf and he communicated to the people on the behalf of the Lord. He was 
the prophet of God to the people. He was the Lord's representative. And as I mentioned earlier, only Moses could fulfill this role because only Moses had the spirit of God in the new covenant, excuse me, in the spirit of God. Conversely, all of the church, all of the church is given the spirit of God in the new covenant. The church collectively represents the Lord both to one another and to the world. We as a people, not as persons per se, we do have the Spirit personally if we belong to Christ, but we as a people, a collective covenant community, bear witness to Christ and his kingdom both to one another and to the world. Therefore, because of this, the church collectively bears witness to and affirms who is in the community. This affirmation must happen on a local level or in another way within the visible church. Now this, what I'm about to say may ruffle feathers, but I I say this because there is no other way and I'd rather ruffle your feathers and you come talk to me about it later than you not be forced to think about it at all. But you don't belong to the invisible church if you don't belong to the visible church. There is no, there is no universal church for the saint who refuses to submit to the local church. You do not belong to the invisible if you first don't belong to the visible. In Institutes of the Christian Religion, John Calvin, the great reformer, writes this, there is no other way to enter into life unless this mother, that is the church, unless this mother conceive us in her womb, give us birth and nourish us at her breast. Away from her bosom, one cannot hope for any forgiveness of sins or any salvation. A Protestant reformer said this. And yet in modernity, we have so taken grace and goodness and we've made it so individualized as if it's about me and God and me and God only as if there is no church but I am the church this must not be so this must not be so many of the early church fathers reminisced in this sort of way they said if God be the father then the church be the mother Christ died to purchase a bride, a bride, the church. Baptism is entrance, not just into the invisible church, but the visible one. It is entrance into covenant community. And the church, the church holds the keys. The church holds the keys. Baptism, along with the Lord's Supper, is given to the church by the Lord Jesus as a gift for the sake of the church. It is a precious gift, not to be forsaken or abused. Therefore, therefore only the church has the authority to baptize. I I hope you see that 
very easy logic. Because baptism is entrance into the church, only the church can authorize baptism. You cannot go out and dunk yourself in a river and call it good. It doesn't work that way. It will never work that way. The church must affirm baptism because in doing so, they are affirming that that person truly belongs to Christ and is welcomed into the family. And again, in no uncertain terms, it is through baptism that the local visible church both affirms that one has truly been saved and welcomes the newly saved into covenantal community. Regarding that, you may ask, where in Scripture do we see such a thing? It's quite plain both in Matthew 16 and 18, and I'd encourage you to write that down if you do have those questions. In both of those instances, Jesus talking to Peter says, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Peter as a representative of the disciples and by extension the church to come in the apostolic age was given the king the, the keys to the kingdom Christ instituted these ordinances and gave them to him to shepherd but it wasn't just for him he simply serves as a representative to the apostolic age and by extension the church to come forever and so in speaking to Peter, Jesus is giving the church the power and the authority to bind and to loose. And how does this work? Well, if we all have the Spirit, we are doing this collectively. It's not that me as an individual or as a pastor of this church am, you know, shooting from the hip and saying, you're in, you're out, I don't like you. But rather, we as a spirit Field, prayerful community are observing one another to observe both fruit and confession and profession. There are, the New Testament is replete with teaching that you will be known by your fruits and that there is a way for the Christian to walk in life and to walk with regards to the church. In fact, all of the letters in the New Testament were written to churches. Even the letters to Timothy were written in light of him serving at a church. There is no Christian outside of the church. For too long, we have bought wholesale this idea that my relationship with God which that term we don't even really see in the scriptures. I mean, there is one, but is somehow between me and him only, and it's no one else's business. But that's not true. It's not true. It's the church's business because the church is the collective people of God. We have an obligation to warn one another of sin to admonish one another, to encourage one another, to hold one another to the standard of God and his kingdom. Because we, as a people, bear witness to Christ and his kingdom to the world. 
whatever we bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever we loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Christ in mercy has given us this ordinance to guard, to steward, to protect, and to practice. Baptism is the church's for the glory of God and the joy of the church. My next point will be in Romans 6. Romans 6, starting in verse 1. Here we see baptism as death and resurrection, a present reality. So we just looked at a historic view. We looked back as baptism is costly commitment, how it has always been historically upheld, and now we see the present reality that baptism declares. Baptism as death and resurrection. Romans 6, starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Paul is picking up off of an objection earlier in talking about how through one man's trespass, this is all in Romans 5, through one man's trespass, that is Adam, sin came to reign, or death came to reign through sin, so also in the one man all will be made righteous, that one man being Christ. And the objection he foresees is, well, shouldn't we just let sin reign so that mercy will come full fold? If mercy is the result of sin, why not just continue sinning? That grace may abound. Why not? Thus, Paul answers immediately with the objection, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? He's saying, you should know this. This is milk. This is milk. This isn't even meat. You, as a baby Christian, ought to understand this. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Baptism is a picture of death. In baptism, the believer is declaring that they have joined Jesus in his death. And the church serves to affirm that declaration as true. But what, what do we mean by this death? Is it simply symbolic? No. It means that they have repented of their former way of life and have turned from serving Satan, idols, and the flesh so that they may serve the living and true God. And like John's baptism, this still is a baptism of repentance. Look at verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. We were buried with him. This is why we, this is why we baptize by immersion. The, 
the original language in Greek, the, the word for baptism is baptizo. It's, you know, we don't have a unique word for it in English. And so we just, transli- we just transliterate. Baptizo means to immerse. It was also used to describe a ship that sunk at sea. It went under. It drowned. That ship was baptized. <laughs> and so we baptize by immersion. Um, immersion, that is being fully immersed underwater. Immersion is a living picture of both judgment and death. I'll unpack the judgment portion in our next section. Think of it this way. As, as you go under the watery depths, you're covered entirely, entirely by water. And if left there long enough, you would die. You would drown. That's not lost on the imagery of baptism. Because it's also hearkening back to the flood of Noah, which again, we'll unpack more in point three. But baptism by immersion is supposed to be reminiscent of death of being buried. And in that way, you are joining Christ in his death. You are joining him in his death. Continuing on in in verse four, we see you have not just joined him in death, but because you've joined him in death, you will also join him in life. In order that just as Christ was ra- just as just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father we too might walk in newness of life if you have truly truly died with Christ in baptism you will walk in the newness of life through the power of his resurrection there is no exception now i'm not saying that there's not the flesh to deal with and that the process of sanctification is completed at baptism. I'm not implying that. But if your baptism be real, then you truly have died. You truly have died. Resurrection, life, is the only option. Because you have been united to the resurrected one. Do you see that? Paul unpacks this further in verses 5 through 11, what the death and resurrection specifically mean regarding baptism and what are the implications thereof. We read this earlier under our reading of the law, but I think it's uh, helpful to do so again. So join me in reading verses 5 through 11. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, remember, he's explaining how your, de- your baptism is a death and what that death means. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him. Think about that. In baptism, your old self is being crucified with him. You didn't hang on that cross, but in no uncertain terms, he's saying that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin 
Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The one who has died has been set free from sin. How? Because Christ who died and resurrected can never die again. Death has no dominion over him. It no longer has a say whatsoever. It has been defeated. But the death that he died, he actually died to sin. Not for his own sin, but becoming the likeness of sin for his people. Therefore, not only does death no longer have a say, but sin doesn't either. Because Christ is no longer capable of dying again. And he now lives for the Father. In baptism, you experience that same death to sin so that you might live to God. Therefore, in baptism, you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. As the one who has passed through the waters of baptism, you now, by the Spirit, can walk in the fullness of resurrection life through the resurrected Christ. As one who has passed through the waters, you, by the Spirit, can walk in resurrection life because you have been joined to the resurrected one. Baptism inaugurates this entire reality for the believer. This is why, all things considered, we as a church hold to believer's baptism, also known as credo baptism, in contrast to pedo baptism, which is the baptiz baptizing of infants. I'm going to give you just a, a brief little statement. We as pastors of this church are convinced from the scriptures that in order for baptism and the picture that it paints to remain in keeping with all historical precedents and type, and to thoroughly and clearly communicate the depth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it must be performed by immersion and reserved only for those who confess sin, profess Christ, and are in good standing with the church. I wrote that, but that is in keeping with our beliefs. That is the glory of baptism as death and resurrection. You being united to Christ. The early church called the ordinances sacraments. Sacrament uh, relates to the Latin word mysterion, mystery. They viewed these as the mysteries of God revealed. That in baptism and in the Lord's Supper, we have these fundamental mysteries of the gospel made plain. In baptism, the mystery of your union with Christ is put on display. It is declared for all who, are, who bear witness. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. My third point, baptism as hope for the last day. Looking forward. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 18. 
Baptism as hope for the last day, looking forward. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Baptism is hope for the last day. There is a judgment to come. Like the flood, like the flood, there is a judgment to come through which the wicked will be utterly destroyed and the righteous will be saved. On that day, hear me out, Hear me out. On that day, Christ will judge both the living and the dead. In this judgment, he will render to each man according to his works. Peter makes clear, the apostle Peter makes clear that baptism corresponds to judgment. It first corresponds to the flood, which was that first worldwide judgment. But it's not just that Noah's family passed through water and in baptism, so do we. It's not just that they share a mechanical likeness, but rather the correlation is like this. In the same way that Noah and the family of God passed through the flood waters of judgment and wrath to be both saved from death and set apart as the people of God, baptism too is a believer passing through the flood waters of judgment and wrath to be saved from death and set apart with the covenantal community of God, the church. Baptism declares judgment. But it doesn't just declare it. it. It causes hope to rise within the one, for the one who is going under the waters. Because it is also an appeal before God. It is an appeal before God. Verse 21, again, baptism, which corresponds to this, that is the flood, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body. He's saying it's not the the thing, the mechanics of it cleansing you from sin, but rather it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. What does he mean by this, an appeal to God? Well, we still have to set up the framework of judgment for that appeal to make sense, so bear with me. Baptism serves as a sign of judgment to the world. This is apparent in every historical foundation. 
to baptism. The flood was judgment of the unrighteous and the salvation of the righteous. The Red In the Red Sea, the Egyptians were crushed. The Egyptians were crushed. It was only Israel that passed through unscathed. The Egyptians were crushed. And furthermore, those who rebelled in the wilderness forsaking their baptism, they were left to die. They never entered the promised land. And in John's baptism, he is preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent. Therefore, repent. And he goes on further to say that Christ will come with a winnowing fork in his hand and he will separate the wheat from the chaff. The chaff will be burned up in the fire. This is all in the same proclamation of baptism. As such, for the believer, baptism is an appeal to God in faith so that you might be joined to the family of God and spared from the wrath to come. You are appealing to God in baptism through faith, saying, I want to be washed in the waters. I want to be spared from the judgment to come. I want to belong to the covenant of God in covenant community. That's what baptism says. Baptism is also for one's own conscience. This is what he means when he says, not the removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Baptism is for one's own, one's own conscience. Without baptism, there is no real outward sign or fruit that you really belong to Christ. Baptism then becomes the visible proof that you are who you profess to be. Therefore, baptism is not just some trite ritual, but is itself a declaration of faith. It is itself a declaration of faith. Baptism is making visible what has already happened invisibly. And it's not only a pledge of faith concerning oneself, but in it, the church affirms the faith being displayed. So it is, a, is an appeal by the individual, a pledge of their faith for the sake of their conscience. It is affirmed by the church that that faith truly is authentic. And it serves, too, as a warning, a warning to the world that only those who have joined the family of God through baptism will be spared on the day of judgment. Baptism is a sign of judgment. So as we, as we conclude, we will be entering into a time of baptism, but I want to leave you with these few points. As I said at the start, this sermon is a concise theology of baptism, and each point could be preached on its own accord. But as we view this picture of what it means and what it has meant historically, what it, the joy and the beauty and the mystery that it reveals today for the believer, and the warning 
that it portrays to the world. We as a church have to steward rightly our view towards it and our practice of it. And this isn't to be stodgy, but simply to uphold the weight of what it has always meant, what it has always represented, and the gravity that those waters mean. And so if you belong to Christ and have been baptized, rejoice, believer, because all of the promises of God are yours. All the promises of God are yours. If you have yet to trust Christ as the Messiah, then be warned. Be warned. There is a judgment coming, and only the family of God will be spared. To recapitulate, baptism is one of the most beautiful most meaningful and most weighty practices of the church. It has long, long been a picture of covenant, repentance, salvation, and community. In every sense, baptism is entrance into the church of God, the family who will be spared from the wrath of God. So going forward for our practice here at Rivertown, given the sheer gravity of baptism, and the visible church's responsibility to both guard and practice the ordinance, we as a church will be uniting baptism with covenant membership. What this means is that moving forward, we will only be baptizing new believers who are also joining as covenant members. Because baptism is entrance into the church, it makes little to no sense to baptize people that are unwilling to join the community. We would be doing them a disservice and would be inconsistent with our own views of the role of the church. Outside of covenant community, there is no accountability. There is no real discipleship. There is no breast from which we are nurtured into godliness. And so, under God and, in a good, and for the sake of a good conscience as a church, we will be uniting baptism to covenant membership. For if God be the Father, then the church be the mother. Let us pray. Lord, you are merciful in calling sinners to yourself. For God has proved his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That is such a glorious truth that you have condescended, Lord Jesus. You tabernacled among us, coming in the likeness of flesh and taking on the likeness of sin that we might take on your righteousness, that we might walk in the newness of life. I pray today that this wouldn't be lost on us. That your grace is costly. It is not cheap. It calls a man to come and die and be filled with life in the Spirit. And so I pray that we as a church would be humbled by your word. That we would 
in fear and trembling present our members before you, that you would have your will and your way among us, but that we would be encouraged and filled with much joy at the promise of salvation and the hope to come on the last day because we belong to you. In baptism, we have been united to your death that we might also be united to your resurrection. We praise your name. Lord, have your will and your way among us. We are your people for your possession. And it is in your glorious name, Christ Jesus, that we pray. Amen.